Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you had a hunch about that, did you not? Yeah, you did. Hey, it's a great day to be alive. Hope you're having a wonderful time today. I hope you have the opportunity to spend time with people you care about and do cool things together. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't have to be fancy. Just the opportunity to hang out with people who are quality in your life is one of the things that's going to lead you to happiness. And we're going to get into depth about that with our guest today. His name is Mike Viking. He's the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen, Denmark. And he has one of the coolest names I've ever heard, Mike Viking. That's like Todd Cowboy. I think if I was Danish, I would name my kid uh, Hamlet Kierkegaard Viking. <laughs> I mean, my son's name is Elvis, but Hamlet Kierkegaard Viking, I think we can agree that that kid would be a badass. He would have to be to live up to that. Well, who's Mike? The CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. He's written several books, including one you probably have heard of. It's called The Little Book of Hygge. Hygge is spelled H-Y-G-G-E, and I mispronounce it several times during this interview. And Mike, if you actually listen to this, I apologize for distorting your language so horribly, but uh, you took that risk when you published that book in the United States of America. The books are really interesting, and I'll tell you a little bit more about all of them, but in essence, what he does is he explores the ways that we can use our day-to-day decision-making to create happiness in our lives, and spending time with loved ones is a huge one for him, and you create experiences and environments that lend themselves to happiness, it actually works. And I'll go into depth about what that means. But for example, you can create your own home environment by like using candles and lighting your rooms properly so that you have little pockets of light and not just like these blaring overhead fluorescent lights because that's not a real groovy environment to spend time in. I've been trying to implement some hygge into my life since starting this book a month or two ago. And it's an easy read, by the way. It's a really pleasant one. And actually, the way the book is designed is very hygge in and of itself. It's like just reading the book is sort of like drinking a cup of tea in a warm bath. So it's a pleasant reading experience. I highly recommend you check it out. Anyway, I've been trying to implement hygge in my day-to-day life, but here's how I do it. Okay, so as you probably know, since you're an avid listener to this podcast, I record in our guest room slash home office above our garage here at the Crazy Money Podcast Global Headquarters here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I've recently started like really pay attention to the environment here. I've let it get a little sloppy over the last year or so, and I've cleaned it up, put some art on the wall, brought some candles in, and started to turn on the lamp on the other side of the room. So I've got these nice little pockets of light. Because why? Because this is where I spend most of my time. I don't work in a corporate environment anymore. I'm by myself a lot. I have the right, I have the duty to myself to create the nicest environment, to create the most pleasant brain feelies I can for the hours I spend here every day. And you know what? I really have enjoyed it. We had some hygge last night. Last night was Halloween. Did I mention that? It was cold here in Atlanta on Halloween last night. Cold for us is like 40s. And so after spending a couple hours, you know, running around with the kids, visiting with the neighbors, which was very fun and hygge ish in its own right, uh, hygge lick, I believe, is the adjective for hygge. Again, <laughs> sorry, I'm brutalizing your language, Mike. And then we came back here to the house with some close friends and their close friends and some of their close friends other close friends who were in from France, and we had a really nice visit around the fire with some red wine and some frozen pizza because we are very classy here at the Ollinger House. It was nice to recognize the hygge aspects of the evening 
and to sort of uh, take a little bit more intention to, hey, let's make that fire on a night when it's a little chilly outside. It's not free, but it's pretty damn close to free, and it always makes the room a little bit more cozy and nice. All right, so I hope you enjoy listening to this interview with Mike, and I hope if you want to go check out his books, read them and implement them in your life. Give yourself the opportunity to, to have a little bit better day. Because you got enough, uh, you know, stuff that's outside of your control. You might as well light a candle. That's 100% in your control. Okay, I'm going to stop talking. Mike Viking is the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. We're going to talk about why are Danish people so damn happy and how we can steal some of their good ideas to um, create more happiness in our own lives. He also talks about societal reasons why they're happy. And yes, socialism comes up. Those darn cold people in the Nordic countries are socialists, but they're darn happy too. Mike is a New York Times bestselling author of The Little Book of Hygge, The Little Book of Lüge, sorry again, and The Art of Making Memories. Thank you for not putting any other language in the title of that book, Mike. Uh, his books explore happiness, subjective well-being, and quality of life. They offer simple tips to help the reader improve day-to-day happiness, and they have sold over one million copies worldwide. This guy's been in every media outlet on the planet, and today... He reaches the pinnacle of media accomplishment by appearing on the Crazy Money Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy my talk with Mike Viking. Money does matter for happiness, but less than a lot of us think. Yes, on average, richer people are happier, but mainly because being without money is a cause of unhappiness. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. All right, Mike Viking, welcome to Crazy Money. Mike, you live in Copenhagen, Denmark, and you are the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. What is that? Yeah, I know it sounds like a magical place. And it I does. know people imagine we have this office full of puppies and ice cream. Is it made out of Legos? <laughs> I wish, but no. We're a group of people trying to look at happiness, well-being, and quality of life from a scientific perspective. So our work tries to solve three questions. We try to understand how we can measure happiness or the good life. Uh, secondly, why are some people happier than others? And thirdly, how can we improve quality of life? How long have you been at it? Oh, between six and seven years now. I started out back in 2013. And back then it was just me and a good idea and a bad laptop. And perhaps in the beginning <laughs> it was less of a job and more of an expensive hobby. Yes. Uh, but <laughs> I know about that. Yes. <laughs> but we're nine people today and we work uh, globally for both foundations and uh, corporate clients and governments. So you're the founder of the Happiness Research Institute, yeah. correct? What did your friends say when you told them about this idea for a startup? It's been interesting to hear in the later years when I think we sort of landed on, on solid ground that a lot of people came forward and said, well, back then when you first said that you were going to establish a happiness research institute, we kind of doubted whether that was the sort of good strategy. 
But I've also I've received a lot of support uh, on the way. My dad was really supportive when I told him that I had quit my stable job in the wake of the financial crisis to establish something as crazy as a happiness research institute. <laughs> there was a bit of a pause on the phone when I did tell him, but he did say, I think that sounds like a, a, like a good idea. And he has always said to me, you know, make sure you find a job that you enjoy because you're going to spend a lot of hours on it. So that has also been always been a, a sort of guiding principle for me. Sounds like a pretty cool dad. Yeah. How do you fund your operations? We get funded by foundations, uh, some companies, some cities, some governments, where we help them shed some light on these questions. So one uh, of our clients is is the Nordic Council of Ministers, which is sort of the the UN of the five Nordic countries. Uh, We've helped them look at inequalities in well-being. So as you know, the, the Nordic countries often do quite well in happiness rankings, but mm-hmm. that is of course based on an average. So you have people above and people below that average. So who are the people that are still unhappy in some of the happiest countries in the world? So we also work for different foundations and help them evaluate how their funding impacts well-being most efficiently. So evaluate some of their projects. So it's quite diverse. Uh, Of course, then we also do a lot of presentations. I write some books. uh, So that all adds up. So let's figure out how your work can help us change our lives for our listeners. How do you define happy and how do you measure it? Well, I mean, we work with a broad definition of happiness uh, because you have one idea of what happiness is. I I have another one. So we break it down and we look at different components. And it's also what we do when we talk about other complex things like uh, the U.S. economy. We break that down into unemployment, growth, export, um, inflation, and so on. And that gives us a language to talk about how is the American economy doing? So that's also what we need to do with happiness. Break it down, look at different components. So we look at both overall life satisfaction. So asking people to take a step back and evaluate their lives. We look at what kind of emotions do people experience on a daily basis, both positive and negative ones. We look at whether people have a sense of purpose and meaning in life. That's what Aristotle thought the good life was, the meaningful life. And then we like to follow people over time to see how changes in their life circumstances impact these different dimensions. So say you follow 10,000 people over 10 years. Well, some people are going to get promoted. Some people are going to get fired. Some people are going to get married. Some people are going to get divorced. How does those changes in their life circumstances impact how they report on these different dimensions of happiness? But happiness, it's a wide term. It's an umbrella term. It's a dish with many ingredients. We we try to separate the different ones. So what are the factors that have the greatest impact on both happiness and lives of meaning, living lives of meaning? Well, in terms of meaning, uh, we can see that having kids has a tremendously positive impact on the sense of meaning. They sort of show mixed results. (laughs) Yeah, right. So it depends how old the kids are. So if we have very young kids or we have teenagers uh, then it can seem to have a negative effect on, on life satisfaction. But between three and 14, I think it is, it seems to have a, a positive impact. But it's also influenced where we are in the world. So we see a, a happiness penalty from being a parent in the U.S. 
So people with kids are less satisfied with life in the U.S. Uh, than, for example, in Portugal, we see parents being more satisfied with life than people without kids. So whether that's because American kids are less nice than Portuguese kids, <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I, I think, you know, what, what is probably happening is in Portugal and Spain, where there's also a positive impact, is that better at being a team of six adults with the grandparent generation helping bringing up the kids we can also see Sweden and Norway, parents are happier than people without kids because of the, the family-friendly policies that exist in those places. So I think it has to do with, with the surroundings, the context that people are bringing up kids in. Yeah. My kids are 8 and 10, and today is Halloween. So well, it's a pretty yeah, exciting yeah. day for us. And uh, there's a high, <laughs> high degree of satisfaction with our children and, and hopefully with the adults too in our home today. Very good, very good. So to what degree is the individual responsible and capable of determining their own happiness? I think they are entirely capable of determining their own happiness. I think they're actually the only one who can tell us whether they're happy or not. Mm. So it is subjective, but I mean, a lot of things are subjective. We are also entirely capable ourselves to determine whether we are stressed or lonely or angry. It's a subjective emotion. So we are the only judge of that. Whether we are then, did you say, responsible for it? I think that's a more nuanced answer. So I like to think of happiness the way we think of health and how that is affected by different categories. If we look at how long we are going to live, that is impacted by our genetics. I mean, we're born predisposed for some diseases. Secondly, it's also influenced by where we live. So the quality of the healthcare in our countries, the level of air pollution in our cities. And then thirdly, the choices you make on a daily basis. So do you smoke, do you exercise, do you drink, uh, what's your diet and so on. And I think those three categories that influence your longevity. And I think the same three categories can also be used to look at happiness. So yes, there is a genetic component. We can see we are born more or less happy. Um, identical twins have fairly similar happiness levels. Um, the country you live in also impact your uh, happiness level. The least happy people right now are people in Syria. And thirdly, the choices you make on a daily basis also impact how you feel. So yes, to some extent, you have influence over your happiness, but factors you cannot control also influence it. Well, let's talk about one of those things that's kind of outside of people's control where they live. And I'm going to ask you the question that I'm guessing is the number one question you get asked. Correct me if I'm wrong, but why are Danes so freaking happy? <laughs> it's definitely in the top three questions, I would say. So I think it's fair to say that all the Nordic countries are doing quite well in, in the happiness ranking, so not just Denmark. And I think it's also important to say that when we talk about that, it is mainly based on life satisfaction. So one of the dimensions of happiness uh, that is used in, in the World Happiness Report. And it's also, I think, important to underline that these rankings are based on averages. Uh, so you calculate a national average. And that also means that we can call the Nordic countries the happiest in the world. We could also turn it around and say perhaps they are the least unhappy. So <laughs> right, and yeah. I think that's part of the explanation that, that the Nordic model is quite good at reducing causes for unhappiness. Right. So there's access to free healthcare. There is free university education. You get a government stipend each month of 900 US dollars if you go to university. There's generous unemployment benefits, good pension schemes. And that means a lot of the things that causes worry and stress and unhappiness in a lot of countries 
that is being mitigated uh, by the Nordic model. So that's the short answer. The even shorter one is saying that I think the Nordic countries are really good at converting their wealth into well-being. So they are investing in things that create good conditions for good lives, education, healthcare, infrastructure that allow people to enjoy life, whether they're rich or poor. That sounds miserable. <laughs> Socialism is clearly terrible, man. What's? I don't think it is from a well-being, happiness point of view. Um, I mean, I think that is one of the big explanations why the Nordic countries are doing well. I know you've got a new book out, and actually, the only one of yours I haven't read yet. So I apologize for that. That's fine. There, there, there won't be a, there won't be an exam at the end. No of the exams. Year. Okay, good. I've read two books: the Little Book of Huga. How'd I do on that? Good, and, good. And the little book of Luga. Luga, yes. Luga, close enough. All right. So basically these two books are, it's kind of like a handbook for living a pleasant life. And I want you to know, we'll, we'll talk about it in a second. I'm trying to not just talk to people to learn, but also make little changes in my life to see if those contribute to my happiness. But can you, like, one of the things you talk about is that Danes meet most often with their friends and family and feel the calmest and most peaceful. That this socializing and being together is really a part of your culture that isn't in the constitution, presumably but it's how you live. Those social connections drive happiness. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's a pattern we see globally. You know, if I can't ask people directly how happy they are, I would ask them how satisfied, how happy they are with their relationships, because that gives me a pretty good indicator of where they are. And I think that's one of the most consistent patterns we can see across the world um, and, mm -hmm. and some of the best investments we can make. Uh, in friendships and the bonds we have with other people. And of course, that applies across the world. But yeah, Danes, also because of the policies, are able to spend a lot of time with family and friends. Um, it's also something that especially uh, people from the U.S. Uh, experience when they come and live in Denmark, that their quality of life increase because instead of working um, 60 hours per week in, in, in New York or 70 hours per week, they work 37 and 40 hours a week and are able to have dinner with their families on, on a daily basis. Um, so I think that's a big part of the Nordic uh, happiness levels. You talk about averages and how that affects happiness levels. If you could just carve New York City out of the United States, you know, those miserable people just drag our indices <laughs> way down. So the other thing is I'm reading your book. And so let's talk about what Hug is. But like, as you talk about this great lifestyle, that's just so enticing and wonderful and warm. And I was starting to think like, are you getting annoying United States tourists who come over and be like, I want some hygge and I want it now. <laughs> like, how quickly can I get it? I've only got a weekend here. I, I do get calls from journalists sort of um, misunderstanding what hygge is about. I got a call from a journalist saying, okay, if I want hygge, what's the first thing I should buy? Can you or ship if it? I, if I need to have hygge on the go, if I only have five minutes to hygge, what should I do? Then you're not doing it right. <laughs> right, right, right. It's is an atmosphere. It's, it's not something you can buy. What does hygge mean and how does it manifest well, in daily just, life? I think the best short definition of hygge is the art of creating a nice atmosphere. You know, moments where you experience, you know, togetherness, relaxation, uh, perhaps savoring some, some simple pleasures. And of course, that happens everywhere. I've experienced hugely times in the U.S. Uh, and across the world. But what is uniquely Danish is we have a word that describes that situation. So uh, 
now it's also a, a global phenomenon. I think the book is translated to 38 languages. And a lot of people write me from around the world that they've been having Hugo all their lives. They just didn't know there was a word for it. Right. If I called my buddies and said, let's get together and be cozy, that would not go over well. <laughs> They'd be like, what are you talking about? That sounds weird. <laughs> Well, I mean, Danish words can get you into uh, trouble from time to time. I'll give you an example of that. So a couple of years ago, when, when my last book came out, I was also doing a, an interview on a, on a TV morning show in, in the UK. And the host there, like you said, so earlier you've written about Hugo, now you've written about Lücke. And I thought his Danish pronunciation was really good. And in the UK, they've seen a lot of Danish TV dramas. Mm. Uh, so there's the Killing, there's The Bridge, and there's a political drama called Borgen. That's how they pronounce it. Uh, so here we are, live, I think, 4 million viewers. Uh, <laughs> and the host talks about Hugo and Lüge, and I think, well done. And I say to him, you know, well done on pronouncing Danish. You must have been watching a lot of Danish porn, which is how we pronounce it. Uh, but he heard you must have been watching a lot of Danish porn. <laughs> so, so he started to laugh. Uh, all the other hosts, they started to laugh. I had no idea what was going on. And, and that was the end of the interview. So I, I see the trouble in using Danish language from, from time to time. I know what I'm Googling as soon as we get off the <laughs> web conference. It's, it doesn't sound terrible. I got to say, I got to tell you, I mean, stocking caps. Never mind. Okay. If you were to have one, a, a gathering that typified Hugo, what would that look like? I mean, it's just about bringing good people together over some good comfort food. Uh, but what Danes would always sort of insist on, I think, for a hooky dinner is also candles. So Danes are, are crazy about lighting and candles in, in particular. So, yes. so we use twice as many candles as number two in the world um, because it gives off a nice, soft, warm light. It also makes people look nicer. So we have something ah. called Rotofabulous. <laughs> so does beer. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'll give you. I'll give you an example of how, I mean, something as simple as candles can impact behavior. So, I spoke to a Canadian, and if you read Lüge, then you're familiar with this story. But I spoke to a Canadian a few years ago who had read Hugo, and because of the love of candles, he went out and he bought some chandeliers and started to light candles for dinner at home, mm -hmm. and. Uh, he and his wife had three teenage sons. So when uh, when this guy, he started to light the candles, the boys, they started to tease him. Dad, mm -hmm. what's going on with the candles? You know, should we leave? Do you want to have some romantic time with mom? <laughs> uh, but then he says, he noticed eventually the boys, they started to light the candles. It became this ritual of food and fire. And more importantly, he says, their family dinners now last 15 to 20 minutes longer because it puts the boys in a storytelling mood. Oh, that's great. Instead of just sitting down, shoveling down their food, they actually sip their wine and, and talk about their day. Which is huge. And talk about the kinds of social connections you really want to make. It's like getting your kids to actually sit down and talk to you and listen and share. I mean, that's a big deal. As part of this, you know, I have started lighting a lot more candles. I've got candles in my home office right now. And I also started to think about pockets of light. When you set the lighting for a gathering or even like I wake up early and I'm reading, I want pockets of light to make it as comfortable and kind of cozy as possible. And it makes a difference, you know? There you are. Yeah, I, I hereby officially appoint you Hugo ambassador to the U.S. I accept. <laughs> let's play a little game called Hugo, not Hugo. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's do it. All right, I'm going to say something, and you tell me yes, yes or no, or Hugo, not Hugo. All right, candles. Hugo. Drinking mull wine next to a fire. Hugo. Eating McDonald's in your car. Not Hugo. Mozart. 
Um, Too German? No, he's Austrian. Sorry, never mind. If we are like in a lounge, there's candles, there's some wine, there's a fireplace. Right. Yeah, okay. ACDC. Not who but total rug and roll and one of my favorite bands to walk through airports in. Absolutely. Uh, staying <laughs> at the office until 9 p.m. Not Hugo. Checking your phone during dinner. Not Hugo. Baking cookies with your daughter. Hugo. Leftover pizza. Can be Hugo. <laughs> Complaining. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people get some um, some joy out of complaining. So it can be sort of, uh, it can be Hugo complaining. Okay, I don't want to brag, but in eighth grade, my classmates voted me biggest complainer. So, <laughs> so the sense of outrage that we see on social media, I localized in 1982 and to great effect, clearly. So Hugo sounds like a great cold weather activity, but I live in Atlanta where it's 90 degrees well into October. When it's humid outside, how do I create that kind of environment? I mean... So we get summer in, in Denmark as well. It's it's four lovely hours and then it's back to winter again. <laughs> right. And so um, we have Hugo in the summertime as well. So, I mean, having picnic at the beach at night can also be really hugely. Having uh, having some beers in sunset can also be quite hugo. So I don't think necessarily it's reserved for winter, but I think Danes use it as a sort of survival strategy for winter because we have and an abundance of darkness and uh, cold weather in, in the winter months. Okay, now let's go back to Danes and how happy they are. You see these things on average, and yet I'm going to offer you an anecdotal set of Danes mm-hmm. who may not fit the reputation. Okay, Hamlet, not super, <laughs> not super happy. All right, <laughs> Lars Ulrich from Metallica. Don't right. know him, but he seems like a bit of an asshole. Okay, <laughs> Lars Van Trier. I mean... There aren't any darker films than what he makes. And then there's my business school classmate, Jakob, who is a bit grumpy. Do you know him? I, I, I don't know. No, I don't you, know. Yeah, I know been, a lot of Jakobs. Uh, I don't know this particular one, I think. Are Danes happy, bubbly people? Or they're just, they just have a good time hanging out together? I don't think they're happily bubbly people in, in that sense, no. So I think... You know, it's important to underline the differences here in the different ingredients and happiness. They're overall satisfied with life. Um, they feel good about their lives. They don't do samba dancing down the street <laughs> on Monday mornings. They look as grumpy as, as most people across the world when they're going to, to work on Mondays, especially on a cold uh, January morning. As you look at happiness data, and you even say that the sense of social cohesion is a big factor that contributes to to happiness, both on an individual and sort of societal level. And I ask this question in all sincerity, not political at all, but how does immigration, how might that affect the sense of cohesion in the Nordic countries? Uh, it's a good question. So we've had, I mean, immigration in, in several waves for the past, I mean, even 100 years, but we have data from the past, I think, 40 years. So data from back in the 70s, where we had a lot of people uh, at the time from Turkey coming up in the, in or, Vietnam in the 90s, we had people from Yugoslavia. So we, we've had different waves of, of immigration. We don't see any effect on happiness levels going down because of that. There are other studies that show trust can be challenged if you have a lot of different groups uh, mixing. But in terms of happiness levels, um, it doesn't seem to uh, to have an impact on that. We can also see, I think it was the 2016 World Happiness Report, 
when people move to a new country, they will adapt to that country's uh, happiness level over time. Uh, so if people from unhappy countries go to Canada and some go to uh, the UK, Canada is higher up in happiness levels than the UK, uh, then the people going to Canada will also end up with a higher level of happiness. So let's go to money and happiness since that's what we're here to explore in Crazy Money. Is income a reliable proxy for happiness? <laughs> it's a proxy. I mean, money does matter for happiness, but less than a lot of us think and act like. So yes, on average, richer people are happier, but mainly because being without money is a cause of unhappiness. So as you've also explored earlier in your, your program, you know, at one point we see diminishing marginal utility from additional $100 per month. But you know, the first money, extremely important, put food on the table, roof over your head. But if you're already making, you know, a million dollars per year, additional thousand dollars, you know, you buy perhaps a more expensive bottle of wine and that doesn't impact how you feel about your life. I would also say that there is a lot of complexity here because we can also see that people often also care about their relative income and not just the absolute income. So people's satisfaction with their salary and income will depend on how much money does their neighbors, their peers, their friends, their family make. And if you ask people, would you prefer to live in a world where you make $50,000 per year and everybody else makes $25,000 or in a world where you make $100,000 per year, but everybody else makes $200,000. Around 50% of people will choose the first world because they care about the position in the social hierarchy. So yes, money does matter. Um, but I think we sometimes, maybe we, we sometimes look or it becomes too big a factor when we make decisions because it's so easy to compare salary. You know, one job, you make $50,000 per year. Another job, you make $51,000 per year. That's easy to compare. What if the first job gives you 20 minutes of commute per day and the second job gives you two hours of commute per day? Mm -hmm. But because they are easy to compare, I think we sometimes look a little bit too much at money and, and salary when we make our decisions. It seems like the, the Danish attitude towards work is a big contributor to happiness. And that's tied in, obviously, with the social programs that allow people to live a more balanced life. What advice would you give for a, a young person coming up that wants to have a good career, but wants to have some sense of balance in her life as well? Besides move to Denmark. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, vote democratic would be obvious. I mean, it, it's interesting to see, talk about politics for a second. I mean, when there was the 2016 election, 97% of Danes would have voted for Clinton and not Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, Danes are democratic, they're social democratic people. So we see the values in creating good conditions for good lives and you know investing in things that make all of us better off. Uh, I think for the individual young young person, I would I would pass the advice on uh, my dad gave me. I mean, make sure you work with something you enjoy because we see a lot of very miserable millionaires out there that spend their lives working on something they don't really enjoy uh, just because they can make a bit more money on it. So, so listen to your God listen to you where your interests are, uh, your passion is. And I think that's where we need to go career-wise. 
You talk about that sort of there's a lack of materialism in Denmark, or there's certainly less of an emphasis on high luxury goods. You go on to say that happiness doesn't come from a nicer car, but from belonging to a community, knowing that we're all in this together. Do you see societies around the world that have less social cohesion? And how do you, how do you change that? You know, because it does feel, going back to the election, that we're highly divided and polarized in the United States right now. And we see right. there's not a real connection between, there's, I don't know, I think there's a divide between who we are at work and who we are at home. Mm. It's not always the same person. And so I, I guess I don't even know where I'm going with the question other than to say, like, what do you do if you're in that situation? I mean, find another job or, I mean, I we need our jobs to pay our bills, but even if we're not going after the Porsche, how do you bridge that gap? Right. I think the, the treatment is different from country to country. I think a lot of countries could benefit with an overall overhaul of the education system. Um, in a lot of countries, there is a high amount of pressure on, on young people uh, and a high level of competition among young people. Where I think some of the Nordic countries are quite good in their education system to teach kids the value of cooperating instead of competing. And perhaps providing a little bit more holistic approach to education than we see in some countries. Um, and also, I think, you know, it, it is interesting to see that when you look at social mobility, when you look at the American dream, that's actually more available in Denmark than in the U.S. Uh, because of free education, uh, that, you know, talent decides, skills decide whether you go to university and what you can read at university, and not the size of mom's and dad's purse. And I think that allows for a society with better uh, social mobility and also you know, that people enjoy and pick careers they are suited for compared to, to what we see in, in a lot of countries. And I think also in the Nordic countries, they're quite good at having a quite wide definition of success. Um, in some countries, we see that you can become three things. You can become a doctor, you can become a lawyer, you can become a disappointment. And I think, uh, <laughs> and I think that the Nordic countries are quite good at expanding that notion of what success is and what the good life look like. Do the high taxes and does sort of the short work weeks, does that lead to less profitable corporations? Or how do you offset those factors in the economy? Denmark has um, some of the, the highest taxations uh, in the world. So I pay around 50% of my income in tax. Mm -hmm. But together with 88% of Danes, uh, I'm actually happy to pay that high level of, of tax uh, because we feel we get a lot in return. So we see it as investments in quality of life for us all. Um, you know, I got free university education. Healthcare is free. So, so I think there is a, I think there is a sense of, we're investing in good conditions for good lives. And of course, I get less of the money to keep for, for myself when, I, when I'm working, but I don't only work for money. I work because I'm interested in it. Yeah. I'm passionate about what I do. I enjoy writing the books. I enjoy having conversations with people around the world about happiness. So yes, money matters, but it's not all that matter. I mean, I could quit my job and, and live of the money I've made, but... I think that would be quite boring. Uh, I to, did that. You don't want to do it. Exactly. So we work because we enjoy it. We work because it gives us a sense of identity. We work because it gives us a sense of purpose. It doesn't undermine, I think, my creativity or my ambition. All in, I paid about 50% of my income also to taxes, maybe a little bit less. But then again, on top of that, for my wife and two children, I'm paying $25,000 a year in insurance premiums. 
So I'm kind of like traditionally pretty fiscally conservative, but I'm coming around on public health care because, well, hell, I'm paying for it already. You also save the worry and anxiety over, you know, making ends meet because it's taken care of. You know, whether you're rich or poor, it's taken care of. Right. And you don't have to save money to put your kids through through college. I mean, that's got to be. It makes I, sense. It may, I mean, again, miserable, but it makes sense, right? The, uh, you say the, the welfare model's ability to reduce risk, uncertainty, and anxiety prevent extreme unhappiness. So right. it seems to me that as we, in the States and other countries as well, at a certain point are only as safe as your least well-off citizen. Your society is as productive as your as your poorest people and your prisoners are treated, right? So yeah. if you could somehow make sure that people aren't out there living on the street and presenting a danger because they're desperate to the rest of humanity, wouldn't we all be better off? And exactly. you know, I don't know how to get there, but as you say, let's leave the politics for another time. Let's end on a few things. Okay, how can you recommend for people to introduce a little bit more happiness into their daily lives, even if they've got a long commute and even if they're working 55, 60 hours a week? I think that would be very sort of case-by-case diagnosis. I mean, if we're talking about people with a long commute, I have long commutes from time to time. I spend around 100 days traveling per year, so I spend a lot of time in in airplanes and in airports. That's not always good for happiness, but I found them to be a little bit more enjoyable if I listen to podcasts, uh, to audiobooks. Um, so, So that's a personal recommendation. From sort of a mood-boosting point of view, uh, we have sort of a mental health ABC in Denmark, which goes, you know, do something active, do something together with other people, and do something meaningful. I think that's one of the best sort of universal advices we can offer in terms of improving our day-to-day well-being. And you don't have to go out for an expensive meal. Right. No, you know, we actually, we use Hugo as a get-out-of-jail card. If we walk into a restaurant that's too expensive for our budget, we would say, shouldn't we find a place that's more Hugo? Your friends would go, yeah, let's do that. That's great. Um, so, uh, so no, I mean, Hugo is something that offers uh, a get-out-of-jail card on that one. I want to talk about the new book. Well, I want to end on the new book, but I got to ask you first. And maybe this is one of the other two most commonly asked questions, but are you happy? Otherwise, I get fired. <laughs> You've answered that before. I am, but I mean, I'm enjoying myself. I'm privileged enough to have a job I enjoy doing. Uh, my my friends and family are happy and healthy. I live in a city I enjoy in, you know, in a peaceful country with very little to, to worry about. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm blessed in that sense. Tell me about the new book, The Art of Making Memories. That was a midlife crisis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we all have them. So, so last year I turned uh, 40 and that means that oh, you poor guy, you poor I guy. Have lived half my life. So men on average in Denmark live to, we are 80. So I just started to reflect which were actually my happiest moments in the first half, which are my happiest memories and how can I use that uh, knowledge going forward? And I think the biggest aha moment for me in researching and writing the book was coming to the understanding that there is actually something I can do to influence what me, my friends and, and family remember. And having that role as a memory architect is, is quite fun and using tools and strategies and ingredients to make sure that some moments are, are more memorable. Uh, that's been really fun. So you're saying take a whole bunch of selfies, no matter where you are to create that's memories. Not, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> No, it can be little things like using the power of attention or harnessing the power of firsts. Um, So we are more likely to remember new experiences. It's also why 
a lot of us feel that time seems to speed up as we get older. Uh, the years just simply uh, seem to go by quicker and quicker mm -hmm. because in our 40s, in our 50s, we have less first experiences than we did in our teens and in our 20s. So making sure we have uh, first novel experiences is also a way we can slow down the pace of time. It seems like there's a consistent theme going through your work that relates to my question about whether or not we're responsible, that if we're purposeful about spending time with people we love, if we're purposeful about creating an environment that is as kind to our own presence as possible, we really do have the opportunity to have a better week than if we if we otherwise didn't. Even if your day was horrible, if you come home and light a candle and have a cup of tea or a glass of wine and you're happy and give yourself the opportunity to be happy in that moment, it's going to be right. better if you just get pissed off and turn on the TV and zone out for two hours. Yeah. And, and I mean, making sure we pay attention when we feel happy so we can utilize those happy memories later on as a happiness bank. Uh, we can see that people who are able to retrieve happy memories are also happier overall. And I think there is, there is something we can do to sort of harvest more happy memories. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a simple tool. So uh, a month ago, I spoke to a Polish uh, woman who had read my book, and she was reminded by a time when she was eight, and she was having dinner with her mom and her sister. And they're having a good time. They're laughing. They're feeling happy. And then her mother says to them, I hope you remember this moment. Mm. And here we are 30 years later. She still remembers that moment because her mother made her pay attention to it. Now, of course, it's a powerful tool, but you can only use it once in a while. Because if you every time you sit down with your kids, say, I hope you remember this moment, they're going to tell you to shut up. Right, uh, right. But, but used every once in a while, it's, it's a really powerful tool to make people aware of the happiness they're feeling and, and hopefully carry that moment and memory forward with them. Oh, that's great. It's a good place to wrap up. Mike, where can people find out more about the Happiness Research Institute and your books? Online, happinessresearchinstitute.com. Uh, all our reports are available there. Um, and of course, books are available in, in different stores, I assume. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation. It has made me happy and I'm going to remember it. Mike Viking, thank you for your time. Thank you for yours. So there you have it, Mike Viking. If you want to find out more, you can Google him. His name is spelled, by the way, M-E-I-K space W-I-K-I-N-G. Mike Viking. Hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading those books. Like I said, I have implemented a few things into my life that, that have really kind of helped. And uh, hey, man, you know what? A little warm bath, a little tea, a little uh, candle. It's not a bad way to end your day. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for spending your time with us. Uh, if you want to find out more about me, I'm at paulollinger.com. Maybe I'll be telling jokes near you soon. You can find that information on my website. Thank you to Mr. Mike Carano for eliminating the ums and ahs and making me sound smarter than I am. Goodbye, everybody.